7, if you would, please. Acts chapter 27. to you this morning. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we might stand holy and blameless before Him. What a blessing. Amen? Amen. 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 We're about to look at a portion of God's Word, and uh, you might... Put your finger in Second Chronicles chapter 18, so when we get ready to look at some of that, which will be later on, and we've got some more scriptures we're going to be looking to before we get to that, um, but I want you to realize that this is God's Word, and I pray that God, by His grace, would grant you an ear to hear this morning and understand what it is that you're listening to. We should do it with all, all reverence. <clears throat> As we look at this particular scripture in Acts chapter 27, we understand that Paul is on his way to Rome. He knows that he's going to get there because a few chapters over, a few months earlier, he'd been spoken to and told not to be afraid in chapter 23 because just as he had testified of God to Jerusalem, he was also going to Rome. And he was going to stand before Caesar and testify of the things of God before Caesar. And he is on a boat, a ship, and it's not a luxury liner, you understand. He's not a guest. He's not been invited to Rome to hold a conference where the people are eager to listen to him. As a matter of fact, those that are listening to him primarily are seeking his death, and the others don't actually care whether he lives or dies. And he finds himself in a storm. So, we're going to skip around starting at verse 13. Chapter 27 of the book of Acts. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. Understand that Paul had told them that they shouldn't sail. In verse 14, but soon the tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. And the ship was caught and could not face the wind. We gave way to it and were driven along. Verse 18, since we were violently storm tossed, they began to jetson the cargo. Must have been pretty violent. And on the third day, of this storm, you understand. They threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Serious times. Since they had been without food, verse 21 For a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, (laughs) he had to say this, 
Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now, I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God. In other words, like Abraham before him, in hope against hope, he believes God. I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. And sometime later, in the midst of this men, in verse 35, they've been without food, they've been fasting, praying to their gods for 14 days. And he says in verse, and the scripture teaches us in verse 35, and when he had said these things, he took bread, he gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. He's a prisoner. He's not a man that's been looked, that's being looked up to. And yet he seems to have taken charge. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you have granted us the great privilege, the great joy, and the great light of your word this morning. We pray that you would grant to us ears to hear, that you would grant to us eyes to see, That your word, which we know never returns to you void without accomplishing that which you send it forth to do, would work in us this day. I pray, God, if there's any fallow ground in this house this morning that hear me, and I know there are, that you would break it up. That you would seek, sink your plow deeply into that fallow ground. That you would break down all the signs that say no trespassing that want to block you out and that you and your goodness would grant repentance there and that you would sow seed God that might be watered by your grace and love grow to a full plant and produce fruit to the glory of your name we pray for those father that find themselves in storms storm tossed blown against waves crashing against in dilemmas not knowing maybe which way to turn, that you would grant them faith in you to begin with, trust in you, and and cause them to understand that for those who trust you, Lord God, you are like the mountains round about Jerusalem to watch over and to protect and to be a refuge and a guard for them. And grant that they'd have grace to learn from you and to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things, O Lord, that you may be glorified, that Jesus might be lifted up, and that you, Holy Spirit, would be honored and not grieved in the midst of your people here this morning in any way. I ask it in Christ's name and for his sake. I remember when I used to be a guide. I would guide wild turkey hunts, guide mule deer hunts, 
and the outfit that I worked for would guide bear hunts and elk hunts and all kinds of things like that. And we were in uh, New Mexico on a mule deer hunt, which lasted a three-week a three week period, and we had many people come in and during that time. And we were, my brother and I had a, a secret among us, and the guys never could figure it out. We would have these, we would draw for clients, or they would ask for someone in particular. But be it sun or rain or snow or sleet, whatever we were doing, my brother and I could always find our way. We always knew where we were going. We always were sure about where we were going. You know why that might be? And the men that we were leading would walk behind us and go, these bop boys know their way around in the woods, don't they? We'd go into, I mean, snowing, and, and we'd get in front of them. But I had this thing that I had in my shirt pocket, had a long string on it, and I'd get it out, and I didn't show it to them for a long time. And I'd hold it down in front of me. And it had an arrow that I always pointed in one direction. You know which direction that was? Thank you. It was north. And so if I know where north is, I know where east and west and south is, don't you? I can always find my way, regardless. Because the compass, that needle, that arrow with the bright red on my compass, is always giving you a true north. If you turn to the left or you turn to the right, you might get in trouble, especially if it, you would get in trouble, especially if it was snowing, unless you had the compass in your hand. And we're going to see that Paul had a true north in his life, and as a result of having a true north, a set direction that was a true way to go, and any other way was the wrong way to go, he could make statements like he's making here today. And there's one statement in particular that I want us to uh, I want us to key on. <clears throat> you know what? What have I gotten out? <laughs> and that is verse twenty three. I thought about preaching two sermons here this morning, but I just, I'm just going to give you one. So there. So <laughs> Verse 23, and I love the King James Version. And just a portion of that is this way. God, whose I am and whom I serve. He says in verse 23, For this night there stood beside me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship or whom I serve. God whose I am. God whom I serve. And Paul here is acknowledging the one true God in the midst of a bunch of Gentile idolaters. There's some more Christian people, obviously, from the we's that we see interspersed in the text that we read here this morning. 
But he speaks the words that he speaks in the midst of a bunch of Gentiles, a bunch of idolaters. He speaks it in the middle of a strong storm in the, in the Mediterranean. He's like Jonah in the ship of Tarshish. But what does he mean when he said, God, whose I am? God, whom I serve. What does he mean? And I want you to listen very carefully to what I'm about to say, the statement that I am about to make. I believe it with all of my heart. When God says, when Paul says, God, whose I am and whom I serve, he means, I am God's property. I am God's servant. I belong to Him. I serve Him. I am not my own, but I am His in body, in soul, in life, and strength. And with all of my heart, I am God's. Very strong statement. Very, very solemn words. They're the words of the few, but not the many. But, my friends, they should be the words of all who name the name of Christ as Lord. These should be the words that belong to every Christian. I'm God's servant. I am God's property. I belong to Him with all of my very being. All my heart, I am God's. No one. No one includes you, whoever you are. Young, older, middle-aged, or old like me, and decrepit. It's for every one of us. No one should ever say less than this. No one. And listen. Until we come to this, we are all wrong. I don't care how many aisles you've walked. I don't care how much of the catechism you know. And I'm glad for you to know it. It doesn't matter that you've been baptized. If you have not come to this, you are all wrong. Our being... Our very being is out of sorts. Our existence is unreal, as you're going to see. And our souls are dark and they're wretched. Unless we're here. I want you to notice that Paul speaks in a very, very decided manner. He's a very decided man. He's not a man who's wavering or halting between two different opinions. He's got a true north. I'm going this way. He's made up his mind. He has thoroughly decided and he speaks as a man who has made his choice. God, whose I am. God, whom I serve. I am His. And He speaks with a certainty. He speaks certainly. There is no if. There is no perhaps. There is no maybe. I am God's 
will say, if you'll save me from the storm. I am God's if He'll do this. I'm not, I may be God's if He'll do this, or I may be God's if He'll do that. That's not the language of a Christian, and that's not the language of the model that's given to us here this morning. No, perhaps. He speaks as one who knows his relationship to God. Doubting, he doesn't know. In hope against hope, he believes God. Only certainty, not doubting. He speaks thus in 2 Timothy, if you want to look there with me, chapter 1, as he encourages Timothy. You could probably quote it, but I want to encourage you in it. 2 Timothy chapter 1. What makes him speak in such a way? <clears throat> he speaks first off as a man, and he uses this word a whole lot, who's not ashamed. He said, I'm in Romans chapter 1, I think it's verses 14 through 16, he says, Brethren, I'm anxious to preach the gospel to you people who are in Rome. Why? Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to every man who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And we see no shame in this man here in his relationship to God. There's no ifs. There's no perhaps. There's no maybe. It says in verse 8 of 2 Timothy chapter 1, Therefore, he says, Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. And the reason he can go in this direction and say the things that he says, and he says it again in verse 12, after he declares that he's suffering a lot because of what he preaches, he says, but I am not ashamed again. Got every opportunity to be ashamed. And every place he went, he had an opportunity to be ashamed. But in front of the Gentiles, in front of the Jews, in front of the Romans, opportunity presented itself for him to be embarrassed, for him to be ashamed, for him to back up from saying what God said. But he said, no, I am not ashamed. Why? What produces that? For I know whom I have believed. Oh yes, I know him. And I am persuaded, I am convinced of this, that He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. I know the one that I believed in. And I'm persuaded, I'm convinced, I'm not going to go in any other direction. This is the true north. And thus He could say, as we're going to see in just a minute, follow me as I follow Christ. And he speaks calmly. I thought that's very interesting in the midst of the situation that he's in. He speaks in a calm way. These aren't the words of excitement. You know, people say a lot of things in the midst of excitement. I've been guilty of that. Get going. Or somebody gets you going. You're excited. And you say things that you shouldn't have said because you didn't think. It's not the language, it's not the words of excitement, it's not the words of fanaticism. 
There's a calmness here, and I admire it. There's a simplicity about these words. Very, very simple. Very simple. I am God's. I serve Him. I serve Him. I am His. And I think there was a, had to be, a glorious and wonderful peace must have been filling his soul and must have filled his soul as he spoke to him from the strong refuge in which he dwelt. He says in Philippians chapter 4, and that's another one you probably have memorized, but let's look at it in case you don't. And we'll probably go back to it in just a few moments because there's much to see there that in our brief readings we don't see. He says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. How often? Thank you. And again I say, Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. If anyone ever had an opportunity to be anxious about anything, it was this man. He had an opportunity to be anxious during the midst of the storm and the situation that he was facing. He had an opportunity to be anxious when? In Acts 16, right? He's been beat up. He's been taking 39 stripes on his back, I think, and he and Silas are thrown in jail in the deepest part of the dungeon, and they have chains around their on their legs and on their arms, and they're shackled. And what do you find them doing at midnight in Acts chapter 16? Rejoicing in the Lord. They were singing. Songs, they were singing psalms, they were singing hymns. And there was a great earthquake. And the chains fell off, the shackles fell off, and the doors were open, and all the doors to the prison were open. And if you if he had been anxious just about his life only, what would he have done with Silas? Yeah, time to go. <laughs> Let's get out of Dodge. He's in the midst of a storm. But that's not what he's all about. He is all about serving God. And so what's he about to do? He's about to preach the gospel again. (laughs) He's already gotten trouble for preaching the gospel and for people being set free and demon-possessed girls getting set free. But he's about to get in trouble again. Why? Because he stayed with what God had called him to do and he he went to the jailer who was about to kill himself and he had, stay your hand, we're all here. He preached the gospel to the jailer who said, what must I do to be saved? And that man was saved and he and his whole house was baptized that night. He didn't run off. He stayed with the ship, so to speak. He stayed true to the course. Following the leading of his Lord. So, 
He's calm. And then he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That's verse 5 of chapter 4. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything about prayer and supplication. We see him doing that with Silas. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I had just said, when he uttered these words in the midst of this storm, what a wonderful peace must have been filling his soul. Filling his soul. A peace that surpassed understanding. But we're going to see in a moment, it's even more than that. Because we sometimes tend to leave something out in looking for rejoicing and looking for peace. A wonderful peace. And he spoke what he spoke joyfully. These are the ones rejoicing, exalting. What is he rejoicing in? He's rejoicing in the consciousness of this divine relationship that he has. A sure and blessed connection between the living God and himself. Whose I am, whom I serve. This one I know. I know him and whom I believe. There was joyfulness in this man's soul because of the consciousness of this divine relationship that he had. There was always the reality of the presence of God in his life wherever he was at and whatever he was doing. And that made life complete for him. Peter knew something of the same thing. He experienced what Paul has experienced because he's conscious of this divine relationship between himself and the living God. Paul's joy is a joy unspeakable and full of glory. It's something that I really don't even have words for. But it's there because God is there. Because I know God and I know that God knows me. Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Somewhat one of my favorite verses to passages of Scripture to quote. But Peter is just full of this idea. When he says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has caused me to be born again. He knows this to a living hope through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only that, caused me to have an inheritance in verse 4 that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading and is kept in heaven for me. Kept in heaven who by, for, for me who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. And Peter says, and Paul goes through this also in verse 6, In this you rejoice, what we just said, he's rejoicing. Though now for a little while, if necessary, 
You've been grieved by various trials. So that the testing genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you've not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him, you believe in Him. And what do you do? You rejoice with glory that is inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith. The salvation of your souls. Can you feel the burden of that? Can you feel, can, do you know the joy of that? Do you know the sureness of that in your soul, in your heart? Has your mind been renewed to that? To the degree that you go, okay... Wherever I'm at, whatever I'm doing, I'm presenting to my God my body as a living and holy sacrifice, praying that it may be acceptable to Him because I know that this is my reasonable service of worship. Whatever is going on. Why? Because of who I am. I'm His. And what I do I serve Him. I serve Him. And He does it earnestly. Now, His religion, Paul's religion, is very earnest. Earnest. He is intensely serious. Not just a little. Intense. Serious. No flippancy. No facetiousness. No joking about this. No. With Him, all connected with God is a profound reality. You know what makes true truth true? God. Leave him out of whatever there is, and it's not true. Nothing is real or true apart from him. He makes everything complete. There's no completeness to anything when you leave God out. And our nation is leaving God out. And so many churches are leaving God out. They don't understand what we're talking about right here. Nothing is real or true apart from Him. From Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. He holds the breath of all that lives in the palm of His hands. In Him, and Paul is saying this in Acts chapter 17, not, not to a bunch of Church people like here this morning, but guess who he's saying it to? A bunch of Gentiles again. Don't you understand, guys? In Him we live and move and have our being. Apart from Him, nothing is actually real. Nothing is separated from Him. And that is reality. That is reality. And this is what makes him so very earnest. Even in his simplest words, this breaks forth. 
God is involved. His conversation, His citizenship, His conversation is in heaven. God is involved in it all. He says, follow me. Well, that's easy to say that, isn't it? But he, doesn't, he, does, he includes something else when He says, follow me. Follow me as I follow Christ. That's how you follow me. Look back in Philippians chapter 4 again. That's something that we just read. People are always wanting peace. They're always, we want joy. We want rejoicing. But we can read this without leaving by, and leave what it makes it a complete truth. Leaving it out. And leaving out thus what is true Christianity. Paul doesn't just say rejoice, does he? Okay, I want you all to rejoice now. I want everybody rejoicing. Hit the guitar. Bring the lights on. I want everybody waving their hand. I want everybody rejoicing. No, he says rejoice in the Lord. He goes a little further. He said, for the Lord is at hand. And we talk about peace. We all want peace. So we need to rejoice. We're praying for peace. Well, it is the peace of what? Not just peace. It is the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. The peace of God is what guards your hearts and minds Where's that peace at? What's the rest of it say? In Christ Jesus. He is our peace. We leave Him out. God out. We want joy. He is our joy. He is our everything. He is our all in all. You can go to any passages that you want to. And you, and you see that. Go back to First Timothy, Second Timothy again. And start with verse eight in verse chapter one. And he says, Let's not be ashamed of the testimony. I want to give my testimony. A lot of people give their testimony and they might have two minutes of what should make their testimony complete and real. Do not be ashamed of the testimony, what? About our Lord, nor of me as prisoners. But share in suffering, what? For the, for the gospel by the power of God. God who saved us. God who called us to a holy calling. And not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages, the ages began. Which has now been manifest through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death. Over and over and over, He goes on. The completeness of a Christian life has for its sinner has for its Alpha, has for its Omega, God. God. And you realize that you're not your own, that you are bought with a price, that you have been redeemed from your futile way of life, says Peter, not by corruptible, but you inherited from your forefathers, not by corruptible things. 
like silver and gold, but you have been redeemed by the blood of a lamb, by the spotless blood of Christ, and you are not your own. You've been bought, you've been paid for by the blood of Christ. Follow me. I've got a compass in front of you. You're not going to get lost here. But if I'm not following Christ, you are. That's reality. Now, this, my friends, is our model. We aren't apostles, but we're to take our stand here. We're to stand here. Nothing less will do. Nothing less will do. Nothing short of this is Christianity. We're not just hearers, we're doers. We're followers of Christ. This is God's demand upon me and upon you. It is His right. And this is due to Him. He expects this from our hand. And this is our proper position. It is the manly as well as the upright and the Christian thing to do. To be. I'm going to tell you something I know to be true. Neither Christ nor your conscience is satisfied with any other position or less from our hands. Your conscience keep you awake at night. If this isn't true in your life, it will. If you're God's, it will. Even the world, even the world expects this and no less. The world looks. Who's the man that really belongs to God here? Who's the man that's sold out? We used to say that. Who's on fire for God? Who has the Word of God burning in his bones? Where's the guy whose life matches what he's saying? The world is expecting something real to look at. And what are we giving them? Basketball games, baseball games. I read a sign just on a great big church last night coming home from the hospital. It says, mothers, get a night out. Bring your kids to us and we'll feed them. Mothers don't need a night out. Mothers need to be with their children, teaching their children, feeding their children, and at that church house with their children, being sure that what they hear in that meeting is the Word of God. We're just trying to gather in some folks, and the church fills up with a world, and not those that are born again. Get mom born again. Get dad born again. Get mom and dad bringing their kids We try this gimmick and that gimmick, and when we get that place filled up, and we got 65 kids, and we think, well, we're really doing good. 
But have we got this? Have we got this? Indecision. Oscillation. Half-heartedness will not do. It will not do. You know what I mean when I say oscillation? Have you ever tried Thank you, brother. Oscillating. God's not like that, is He? No, no, there's no shifting shadow. There's no variableness or shifting shadow with our God. That's what James teaches us. You don't have to run over here and run over there, run over here and run over there to find God. God's not always doing this number, oscillating. But indecision, oscillation, half-heartedness will not do. Compromise will not do. Do you understand me? Compromise will not do. Formalism will not do. In everything that pertains to God, there must be reality, sincerity, earnestness, thus completeness. Reality. You're praying for, you're seeking, and it is a reality in your life that is no longer you that lives, but Christ that lives in you. Why is that? Well, the verse right in front of the one I just quoted tells you because you have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer you that lives. Is that a reality in your life? Is Christ living in you? And as a result of that, are you seeing as the world sees that what is, what is complete? The whole heart must be there, my friends. There must be no hollow religion. You ever wanted to cut a hollow tree? Hollow tree has a different sound, doesn't it? Even though it may look like a good solid tree and you hit it and, wait a minute, that thing looks like this, but it's hollow. What does that mean to you? It's not good for anything. It's hollow. You can't, you can't even tell what it's going to do when you cut it. I cut a lot of trees. used to do it a whole lot. And you can bed a tree, hold a tree a certain direction, and make a tree do certain things, make it even dance in the air. But if it's a hollow tree, you never know what it's going to do. It's liable to break off any minute and kill you, hurt you, shatter something. Because it's hollow. The whole heart must be involved. There must be no holla religion. You know, I'm part of the, came out of the hippie culture. Dating myself. Probably some of you in here don't even know what that hippie culture was. Bunch of long-haired, when long-haired wasn't acceptable guys. You come home from somewhere and the first thing that your daddy says to you when you get to the gate, if he hadn't seen you in the six months, it is, oh boy, son, before you come through that gate, 
you need to go get a haircut. <laughs> it wasn't accepted. But you know, people ask me why I didn't go to church. And even after I was born again, I stepped back from it. And one of the reasons the one of the reasons was is because I knew the men that were deacons, leaders, men, young men in school who said they were Christians, they were at church every Sunday, they were raised every Sunday. But their profession was hollow. Their life was hollow. It was just words. Words today and not tomorrow. We had an expression when I, in the hippie culture, we, we accuse people of being plastic. Plastic people. Plastic people are not, not solid. They're very pliable. They kind of are like this. Some guys are even plastic hippies. Get close to the fire, and guess what happens with the plastic guys? They melt. They change their form. Plastic. I didn't care for what was plastic. I wanted to see something real. Like I said just a few minutes ago, even the world expects it of you, Christian. What I'm trying to describe, challenge you with, and encourage you to do, the world is even looking for that. They may kill you for it. And you're going to get an opportunity. The wheat from the tares, the things going on, is going to be recognized. It's going to be seen. You're going to get all kinds of opportunities to compromise. To be hollow. And if you're doing that now, if you started doing it, repent. Repent. God will not have it. It is our heart's misery. Our hearts even resent it. You know, you, you find your heart resenting that at night when you're lying there. It makes us miserable. It becomes like a misery in our back. Us old people talk about this misery. I got, how you doing, Mark? Well, I, I'm all right, but I got this misery in my back. It's just, Aggravating me all the time. I can't move the way I want to move. It, it hurts me. I'm, I'm very aware of it. This kind of life makes us miserable. Miserable. Not our own. We're not gods. We're not our own. We don't belong to Christ. We don't belong to the world. Not religious. Not irreligious. Kind of nowhere, aren't we? Plastic. That is misery. That's misery. The heart sees it, the heart knows it, and the heart aches. The heart aches with its own hollowness. It will not do. So, my friends, I would beg of you, let your religion be real. If you care to have any religion at all, let it be real. Now, how does that happen? Very quickly, look with me to Romans chapter 5, because it begins with 
reconciliation. It begins with reconciliation. Romans chapter 5. Paul is speaking of being justified in the first part of that chapter. And at the end of chapter 4, he speaks of Jesus who was lifted up for our transgressions, who was raised again for our justification. And so therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to be real... We've got to start with reconciliation. And we're going to read some more scriptures in just a minute. But you know what is the foundation to that reconciliation? Peace. The peace of Christ Jesus. The peace that is in Christ Jesus. That's the foundation. We have peace with God. Look what it says. Read with me. In verse 6 of that same chapter. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God, you see Christ and God in the middle of all this, shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore... We have now been justified by His blood. Much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, here's our word, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now there's reconciliation. That is the beginning of this. And it has for its foundation peace Well, among with Christ. We've been justified, verse 1 again, by faith. And though we have, so we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't just have peace. It's completed through our Lord Jesus Christ again. We preach this reconciliation through the cross, through the blood. And if it's not yet began with you, may it come into existence now. May it come into existence now. Christ is our peace. His peace He gives us. Enter into peace through Him. Give yourself to God. Give your affection to Him. Give your soul. Give your body. Give all that you are to Him. Know Him. And speak of Him as the God whose you are and whom you serve. When we're reconciled like this, We learn to rejoice like Paul in our heavenly relationship and then our happy service. I'm His and I serve Him. We become different beings. Yes, we do. New creations, born again. Not our own, but God's. In the world, but not of it. Now, I'm going to tell you something. This isolates us from the crowd. If you're a man pleaser, you want the crowd to applaud you, not going to happen. 
This isolates us from the crowd. It individualizes us. It, we are individually members one of another, but this makes us one body. And this individualizes us. It even elevates us to something different. There's not a bunch of races in the world. There's two. God's people and the people who aren't. That's it. They may have some different colors in them, but there's only actually two. That God sees, I believe. It isolates us from the crowd. We're, we're different. We're not our own, but God's. And when that happens, all we do and all we speak comes from Him. And that brings us to the example I wanted to use in Second Chronicles 18. Jehoshaphat and Ahab have allied together against a common enemy. Now, what Jehoshaphat was doing with Ahab, I'm not real sure I know, but he was with him. Judah and Israel represented there. And they're going out. Jehoshaphat was a godly man, as you know. And they're going out to face an enemy. And Jehoshaphat wants to know something. He says to Ahab, who's the king of Israel, in verse 4, Well, I'd like to inquire first for the word of the Lord. I'd like to know what God has to say about what we're about to do. And so the king of Israel, he gathered the prophets all together. You know how many of them there were? Four hundred. Four hundred prophets all came together. And they all told Jehoshaphat and, and the king of Israel, Ahab, Yeah, go on out. God's going to give these armies to you. You're going to wipe them out. Four hundred of them. They're all agreed. But Jehoshaphat knows something's up. He's not real sure about this. And he says, well, isn't there another prophet in town? There's 400 of them here now. Isn't there another prophet in town somewhere? Uh, I'd like to listen to somebody else. And then the king of Israel says in verse 7, oh yeah, there's another man. And we can inquire of the Lord by him. Uh, Micah, the son of Imlah. But guess what? I hate him. For he never prophesies good concerning me, but he always prophesies evil. He never says the stuff I want to hear. He's isolated from the other folks. He's individualized from everybody else. And so they say, well, you go get that guy. So they go to get him. And on the way, there was another one of their prophets who made himself some horns of iron. And he says to Jehoshaphat and, and Ahab, the king of Israel... He takes the horns of a, and he says, with these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets, verse 11, prophesied, and they said so, go up and triumph. The Lord's going to give it into the hand of the king. Now, notice what the messengers went to this other prophet and said to him. The messengers, verse 13, who went to summon Micaiah, Micaiah, said to him, Behold, the word of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. So let your word be like the word of one of them. Don't be different and speak favorably. 
But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what my God says, that I will speak. Why? Because He's God, whose I am and whom I serve. Long story short, he goes in the presence of these 400 prophets, the big shots in town, the religious leaders of the day. And he goes into the presence of all this royalty, Jehoshaphat and this king, and he tells them in so many words, you're not going to make it. And when he says that, he gives an example of how the Lord had put a lying spirit in the prophets' mouths that were prophesying to Ahab because God's going to kill him. And when he says that, one of the prophets, Zedekiah, gave him a big whack. Whop! It's what you get. You're individualized. You're set apart. But can't you see something noble about this? It ennobles you. It elevates you above. God does. His Word does. Not that you're somebody or something He gets whacked. And the king said, you take him to my son, Joash, and you put him in the prison and give him meager rations of bread and water until I come back home safe. And the prophet said, if you do come back home, the word of the Lord has not ever been spoken to me. Paraphrased. Y'all know what happened to Ahab? He dressed himself up in another suit of clothes so they wouldn't know he's a king because everybody had instructions. The Syrians had instructions, kill Ahab, kill the king. So he dressed himself up so that he wouldn't be recognized. And they all get after Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat cries out, oh, I'm not him. Where's he at? So some guy just takes, lifts his arrow, and shoots it at what some people would call random. And it... Coincidentally, which we don't believe at all, stuck between the armor spot. There was a hole in there. Chug. Killed him. Over and over and over. You'll be called on to do this. Matter of fact, I'll venture to say you are called on to do this. To have the spirit of this man. To have the spirit of Paul in the midst of the storm. and Apply it to yourself. You hear Bill praying about my mother this morning? Storm. Storm, storm, storm. But God, whose I am and whom I serve. He's my joy. He's my victory. He's got it all in his hands and he knows when a sparrow falls and when he wants my mother, he'll take her. And I'll rejoice in the fact that I know she's went from the earthly to the heavenly. And that's okay. For an 89-year-old woman. That's okay. So, what am I saying? We don't do the common thing, friend. You know why we don't have a youth group in this church? Get with some of us, the elders, and we'll tell you. And the list could go on. 
we engage not in the common, not in the trifling thing. We don't trifle with God's words. We engage in the sanctified, the glorified. That's what the Scripture says to do, isn't it? Whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, you do it all for the glory of God. Whatever your hand finds to do, you do it with all your might and all your strength as unto the Lord. You acknowledge the Lord in all your ways. And you seek the heart of Christ who said, I do always those things that are pleasing unto the Father. And I know we don't, but we hate the fact that we don't. And we desire and delight in wanting to do it. Because we're His. May we know, may we learn to do this biblical, heavenly, godly, and holy idea of life. I'm talking about life. How then shall we live? Y'all read Schaefer, right? This is it. He's come that we might have life and that more abundantly. That doesn't mean you get Learjets. Don't twist it to all that. It's a foolish lie. So, repeating to yourself, the God whose I am and whom I serve, you press forward. You go on in your course. You're given nerve. Nerve for your duty. Nerve for your trial. And you repeat to others, in the midst of life, you stand up and say what Paul says in the midst of the storms, the temptations coming your way. You say the God, God whose I am and whom I serve. And you know what? When you say that, you've given a sufficient answer to all the words and to all the arts of temptation by which men and the devil seek to make us compromise our character and thus become unfaithful in our calling and service. Before every decision, when that temptation comes to you, to doubt, to, oh no, God, whose I am and whom I serve. That's your mindset. Your mind renews to that. Let us pray. We would pray, Lord. We humble ourselves before you who are great and almighty God, our Father. We rejoice that you've not kept us under the shadows of the law of Moses. But you have invited us, you have called us, you insist upon us coming to a service that is far more excellent You call us to consecrate ourselves, body and soul, to You. And to offer not only ourselves, but also sacrifices of praise and prayer through Christ Your Son. May You grant Your grace here today. That by Your grace we might seek true purity and labor 
to give from a real sincerity of heart to give a service that is approved by you. That the meditations of our hearts and the words of our mouths would be acceptable unto you. Grant reverence among us as we call upon your name and fulfill in us and through us always that which is pleasing to you. That your name might be magnified and celebrated through the whole world as it was truly made known to us in the person of your only begotten Son, even our Lord Jesus Christ. We draw near, we ask you, God, to draw near to us, working us, Holy Spirit, to will, to work, and to do your good pleasure this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen.